Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Beth Huddleston, and I'm the Vice President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and I'd like to thank you all for being here for this timely presentation of 21st Century Energy Security, Moving Past the Deepwater Horizon Tragedy with John Hoffmeister, and we're very delighted that he's here. I would also like to thank our friends at the Dallas Museum of Nature and Science for partnering with the Council again for this wonderful program. And I know we'll see many, many partnerships in the months and years to come. We are also grateful for the Dallas Friday Group and the Dallas Business Club for their promotion of this program. Before we continue, please join me in recognizing the Rosewood Crescent Hotel for hosting this morning. They are one of our strategic partner hotels, and we're always grateful for the job that they do for us. So thank you, Rosewood Crescent Hotel. Anyway, and now it is my great privilege to welcome Terrell Falk to the, the podium. She is the um, Chief Operating Officer of the Museum of Nature and Science, and she will have the honor of introducing John Hoffmeister. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. I want to echo Beth's um, words in thanking our partner here, the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. One thing that uh, our guest, Mr. John Hoffmeister, has is great timing. His book, Why We Hate the Oil Companies, was released on May 25th in the midst of the most catastrophic oil spill in U.S. history. With 24-7 media coverage on the oil spill, Hoffmeister has been on the media trail giving his unique perspective as an energy insider to explain why things are the way they are in the energy sector and what can be done to change that landscape. Even better, many book critics termed his views controversial. So what a way to launch a book. John Hoffmeister joined Shell Oil in 1997 and served as its president from 2005 to 2008, following 25 years in executive leadership positions in major energy-consuming companies, including General Electric, Nortel, and Allied Signal. As Shell president, Hoffmeister launched an extensive outreach program, unprecedented in the energy industry, to discuss critical global energy challenges. This was an 18-month, 50-city tour leading 250 Shell leaders to meet more than 15,000 business leaders, civic leaders, community leaders, policymakers, and academics. And among his stops uh, was, were stops in Dallas with the Dallas Friday Group and the World Affairs Council. Upon retirement from Shell, he founded and currently heads the nonprofit Citizens for Affordable Energy, a nationwide membership Public Policy Education Association that promotes sound U.S. energy solutions and offers education on energy issues. 
It has been said that he is a man on a mission, crisscrossing the country in a grassroots campaign to change the way we look at energy. He serves as the chairman of, of the National Urban League and is a member of the U.S. Department of Energy's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Technical Advisory Committee. So this morning, please join me in welcoming Mr. John Hoffmeister. Well, thank you, Terrell, and thank you, everyone, for coming out on a beautiful Friday morning. The mission, and I'll cut right to the chase so that we can have as much time for discussion and Q&A as, as we can, can provide. The mission, to be blunt, is to do whatever can be done to get energy out of politics. Politics is destroying this nation's energy future. That is the essence of what I wrote about. It's the essence of what I learned as president of Shell Oil Company, where I sat through six hearings. Tony Hayward's only had one. <laughs> I sat through six hearings with almost the exact same script, except that the subject was high gasoline prices at the time, not an environmental disaster but was treated with the same indignity and the same disrespect and the same ignorance and lack of knowledge and understanding as what we saw yesterday coming from many of the members. We have a situation in this country now, ladies and gentlemen, where I would maintain staying on our present course within the decade before 2020 arrives, somewhere between 2016 and 2020, to be more precise, we face the beginning of a new age in America. It's an age which our children and our grandchildren will say, why did you do this to us? I call it the age of the energy abyss. An energy abyss which looks like a third world country has taken over and is running the United States of America when it comes to our energy system. We built, as a people, as a nation, what the world had never seen and has yet to see again when we built out the United States energy system of the 20th century. Beginning in the 19-teens, rapidly expanding in the 1930s and 40s, particularly with rural electrification and with the development of oil and gas, and then in the 1950s and 60s with the new knowledge of nuclear energy and with the expanded highway system, we created an infrastructure for energy that has been never repeated in the world as we know it. And around the middle of the 1970s, we got a little shock. And that shock came from across the ocean when our energy nirvana, and I really believe we can call it an energy nirvana, having built from all of the electrical plants, all of the refineries, all of the oil wells, all of the highways and automobiles, we were overreaching a bit with our personal mobility, and we found it important for price reasons in the beginning, for cost reasons, to begin importing Middle Eastern oil. 
which was running between $1.50 and $2 a barrel at the time we started importing it, if anybody can remember those days. <laughs> and the little shock we got in the 1970s was an awareness on the part of oil producers in the Middle East that maybe we should be getting more than $2 a barrel. And maybe with the end of colonialism and the beginning of independence, we could assert ourselves and put together our pricing power, and that led to the doubling, and then the doubling again, of the oil price, complicated by anger over actions taken by the Netherlands and the United States with respect to Israel, which led to the first Arab oil, boy oil boycott in 1973. And that was a little wake-up call to the United States of America. At the time, we were importing 30% of the oil we consumed because, frankly, it was cheaper to import it than it was to produce it. And that's how we got started in the oil importing business. But then as time moved on, as we got into the 80s, as we got into especially the 90s, and most importantly this past decade, we kept importing more and more oil not because it was cheaper, not because of price, but because some among us had decided we really don't want to drill our own oil because it's dirty. We don't want to see it, taste it, touch it, or smell it. And therefore, let's just import it. And so when Richard Nixon declared in 1973, with a wake-up call from the Arab oil embargo, when he declared energy independence, and he was the first president to ever put those two words together, and those words were created by William Sapphire, his speechwriter. And he needed something, he said to William Sapphire, that has a little pizzazz, because the American people were in an ugly mood. And the ugly mood was being driven by gas lines, where you may remember the evening news would have photo shots from airplanes showing the gas lines stretching for miles, or stations which just simply had a hand-painted sign, no gas. The nation was in an ugly mood, so he wanted something to turn the conversation, and he said, Thanksgiving Eve, 1973, my fellow Americans, we're going for energy independence, and we will get there in seven years. Turn the clock forward. Last Tuesday evening, the eighth president since Nixon, President Obama, said to the American people, we're going for energy independence, and we're going to use wind and solar to achieve that, that energy independence, the only two specific forms of energy that were mentioned in his speech. The reason we have to get politics out of energy, ladies and gentlemen, is eight presidents, eight, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, eight presidents have promised energy independence. Oh, and by the way, so have 18 Congresses since 1973. 18 Congresses have promised energy independence. And, and, and aren't they delivering? Didn't we have an energy bill in 2005? We had another one in 2006. We had another one in 2007. We had another energy bill in 2008. Aren't you feeling more secure as I describe these bills? We would have had one in 2009 if the Senate had picked up Waxman-Markey, and maybe we'll get uh, 
uh, Carrie Lieberman before the year's out. That would have been six bills in six years. None of which, absolutely none of which, dealt with or deal with the real issues of energy. Because here's the real issue of energy. 98% of all the energy we consume comes from the days of the energy nirvana. From the mid-century, the mid-20th century, up through the 1970s, and when we finished building out this huge energy system, 98% of all the energy we have today comes from that system. That's coal, oil, gas, nuclear, and hydropower. 98%, 2% comes from alternative-slash-renewable types of energy, wind, solar, biofuels. So we're going to build energy independence on the basis of a new energy system that includes wind and solar and biofuels. Our children will not use electricity very often, nor will they have gasoline if we continue on the rate that we are going. I'm predicting the energy abyss because over the last five years, we have shelved the building of 100 coal plants. They won't be built. The average age of the 600 coal plants that we have today is 38 years old. Add 10 years to it, the average age will be close to 46, 47 years old. And they've been running 24-7 since they opened up. We haven't built a new nuclear plant in 20 years. And that was 10 years delayed because of lawsuits. So it would have been 30 years. We won't build another nuclear plant in the next decade. We would have already needed permitting, already needed approved permitting to finish a nuclear plant within the next decade. The permitting process on the ideas in Georgia and the ideas in Texas haven't begun. And we know they will face legal challenge. We just know it. Oh, and, and also, we took away the nuclear waste repository site in Nevada called Yucca Mountain which was created by an act of Congress. A law created Yucca Mountain as the National Nuclear Waste Depository Site, and the nuclear industry has been charged about $20 billion, which we all have paid for through electricity rates, to build it. But it was canceled in March of 2009 when a brand new administration said, uh, we're not going to license. We're not going to permit Yucca Mountain. So a law that was passed by the Congress was overturned by the Energy Secretary, who's an administrator appointed by the President. And not a word out of Congress over the effective de-gutting of a law. And we're a nation of laws when we want to be. $20 billion thrown down the drain. But why would that be? What's going on in Nevada? Nevada has a little political contest this year. Somebody named Harry Reid, who's never liked Yucca Mountain, running for re-election, running poorly for re-election. Let's throw him a bone, a $20 billion bone 
So he can say to the million people in Nevada, I got rid of Yucca Mountain, and the other 320 million people in America say, but what about our nuclear waste? Politics and energy don't mix. So there won't be, a new, won't be new nuclear plants. We're drilling about 7 million barrels a day today. That's down from 10 in the 1970s. We now have an oil drilling moratorium in deep water. Six-month moratorium. Don't hold your breath. The Presidential Commission, which has been appointed to look at the future of deep water drilling, hasn't even gotten started yet, two months into the blowout. And if you look at the constituent members of the Presidential Commission, all you can see is politics writ all over that commission. No one from the energy industry, no one from the business community, but a commission made up of environmentalists and academics and politicians. As we look ahead, we could count on 2011, 2012, 2013, oil that would have been produced from the 33 deep water rigs that are now shut down would have been coming to market to the tune of about a half a million barrels a day during that time frame. That won't be there. Those rigs may never come back depending upon what the Presidential Commission decides. So if we look at the, and, and nobody, by the way, is planning a new hydroelectric dam of any size or magnitude anywhere in the 50 states. So when we look at the 98% of our energy supply, what we're looking at is aging, decline, and decommissioning. We're not looking at building, expanding, and growing. And why is that problematic? Well, our population continues to grow. We continue to have more children and more grandchildren. Thank God. But they all need electricity. They all need liquid fuel. Some of those who lead us say, well, we will use energy efficiency as we go forward. Great soundbite. We'll be 20% more efficient. We don't need those coal plants that will be decommissioned in the coming decade. We'll save 20% efficiency through efficiency. Good idea, good soundbite, but in 100 years of American experience, we have never, ever reduced demand for electricity except during a recession. And here we are, as a people, being saturated because we choose to be with more and more electronic devices. We love them. Love them to death. Can't separate them from our bodies. <laughs> and we got to plug them in. And we're going to have cars, popular cars, that don't smell when you turn on the engine, which are going to also need electricity. And we're going to save 20% so we don't have to build coal plants. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold together. And so I predict within the decade, the energy abyss looks like brownouts, blackouts, and gas lines. And guess when the blackouts come? In the south in the summer, in the north in the winter. Isn't that a joy to look forward to? And the gas lines may not happen in Texas because we have refineries. But those pleasant, loving, neighborly people in California and New York and New Jersey are going to be really getting to know their neighbors as they stand in line for hours or days 
waiting to fill up their car as and when a truck delivery might happen. That's not a very bright forecast. So as I'm thinking about all of this, I go visit my friend Matt Simmons. Many of you may know Matt Simmons. He's the author of the concept called Peak Oil. A brilliant, brilliant man. We're in adjoining office towers in Houston. So I sent him the galley edition of my book. He read it. We got together. He said, John, I can only tell you one thing. You're an optimist. <laughs> because Matt's view, Matt's view is we're one day away every day from an energy Pearl Harbor. Now, maybe we'd call him a pessimist. But somewhere between my optimism and his pessimism, we have to come to grips with this. We have three big issues that we face with politics and energy. And we have to find a way to divorce these three issues from our energy future. And they all relate to federal energy performance, federal government energy performance. The first is our elected representatives are consumed with partisanship, consumed with the Republican way or the Democratic way, and neither the two shall come together. We see it over and over. And I'm not going to say this is right or that's right. I'm simply going to say they are so focused on being right that what we get is wrong. And it's happening year after year after year. And the only way to go forward is to be more right or to be more left and to go for the supermajority status so you can have all that power and stuff it down the other side's throats so in their regurgitation process they come back at it to get their own supermajority to stuff it back. The partisan activity of our government is resulting in the absence of sound public policy. And when it comes to energy, there's a time factor here. Energy plants get old. They have to go away because they're not safe or reliable or affordable. The second problem is the people we elect have a time dimension inside their heads, an automatic clock inside their heads that operates on a two-year cycle. Because every two years, there's an election. And every two years, their career is coming to an end or beginning anew. And whether they are four-year or six-year terms for senators and presidents, it's much the same. Is the handling of the BP disaster not being dealt with in terms of five months from now? And what happens in November in terms of one of the parties or both of the parties? And the consequence of that two-year time cycle on what has to happen in the energy space, energy executives think in decades. The gasoline you buy today was somebody's idea 10, 20, or even 30 years ago. And the work that was going on in the deep water that's now in a moratorium, 
was going to take care of us over the next 10 or 20 years. So energy executives think in terms of decades. Elected officials think in terms of election cycles. And they can't communicate with each other. Does not compute the conversations. And then the third issue, which is even more serious than the first two, and these may sound like strong words, our federal government, when it comes to energy and the environment, is dysfunctional, it is broken, and it is unfixable in its current form. Those are fairly strong words. They don't like me to say that. When somebody pre reviewed my book, a good friend of mine said, John, are you really going to print that? Dysfunctional, broken, and unfixable in its current form? I said, yes. He said, you may want to get a one-way ticket to Antarctica when your book comes out. <laughs> They're not going to like that very much. I said, I know. I've already told them that. Verbally, many times. In private. Now I'm saying it in public. The executive branch has 13 agencies governing energy and the environment. You think Stephen Chu, the Secretary of Energy, runs the energy governance of this country? Absolutely not. He has 12 counterparts that help him, or don't, as the case may be. What we see on the Gulf Coast are the intergovernmental op inter operations of about 12 agencies on the beach. No wonder nothing's getting cleaned up. Or no wonder it's chaos and disorganization. You have multiple overlapping agencies, each getting in each other's way. And we saw it after Katrina. And we're seeing it again. And we'll continue to see it. As long as you have 13 bosses, you basically have no boss. But then you go to the legislative branch, and we are we, we are governed by 26 congressional committees and subcommittees governing energy and the environment. And none of this is new. This isn't the Obama administration. This isn't the Bush administration. This isn't the Clinton administration. This isn't the George H.W. Bush administration or the Reagan administration. This is all of them put together have created this over decades. And then in the courts, every circuit court in the nation can make energy policy from the bench by deciding a case at the bench. And we live with it. So if we're looking at efficiency, effectiveness, productivity, performance management, accountability, which any of you who work in companies or institutions around this nation realize that's how we operate. We're always striving for more efficiency, better effectiveness, accountability, and so on. That's not our federal government, and it can't be fixed in its current form when it comes to energy. In other words, we can't just appoint an energy czar and say, fix this. We have one, and she's in a box. Carol Browner can't get out of her box because she depends on the legislative process. But the legislative process can't be counted on because we're going into the last 40 days of this legislative session before the election, and the Senate has to decide from among six energy bills, are we going to have any energy bill? That's what we're facing, ladies and gentlemen. Why we hate the oil companies is a metaphor for the fact that we really hate ourselves. Because we've allowed this to happen. We're the people that voted for these people who made this happen.
19th century was the beginning of the age of industrialization that we went through without a central bank. Our monetary system through the 19th century was in complete disarray. We had panics. We had depressions, recessions, boom and bust was all part and parcel of the 19th century. And then in 1907, while we were still struggling with all of the boom and bust, the Treasury went belly up. The United States Treasury went into default until it was rescued by J.P. Morgan and his associates on Wall Street. And everybody swore up and down, that'll never happen again. We can't allow this private sector to bail out the public sector. The public sector's got to get it right. But it did in 1912. The nation has the benchmark of monetary stability for the world. Now, the Fed is not perfect. I would never profess perfection. It is staffed by humans, people who make errors. So Greenspan's easy money decision fed the blow-up of our financial system. It doesn't call into question the Federal Reserve Act. It calls into question the judgment of the governors. And that's a function of human performance. Seven years of stability and 97 budgeted for by Congress can do some good. And those governors are subject matter experts appointed for 14-year terms, so they don't care about November of this year or November of two years from now or two years on because they're ensconced for 14 years. They're independent of the political process, independent of Congress's budget battles, by fees from the member banks, which we ultimately all pay for, but don't even know how much it is because it's so small we can't see it. I'm suggesting that the way we fix energy, number one, is to legislate for an independent regulatory agency to govern energy and the environment because they are hand in glove. And to do four things, just as the Fed has four major authorities, money supply, interest rate, open market window, and the right to intervene, an independent regulatory agency for energy can do four things. Manage our energy supply future. What kinds of resources will we develop over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50 years as what percentage of the total supply source? How much coal? How much gas? How much hydropower? How much nuclear as a percentage of the total? then the industry can go make that happen in free market ways. Also make big, important technology decisions for the efficient use of energy, which might include, for example, a decision like Japan and Germany have made to commit their future automobile production to power from hydrogen fuel cells. By 2014 and 2015, Germany and Japan will be turning out at least 100,000 units per year that are powered by hydrogen fuel cells in order to wean themselves off the internal combustion engine. If we weaned ourselves off the internal combustion engine, which, by the way, is 100 years old, nothing wrong with age, except when it's mechanical, a 100-year-old device that we spend thousands of dollars to put in our automobiles, which in the end is 20% efficient over a century, 
It started 20% efficient. It still is 20% efficient. 20 cents on every dollar gives you go. 80 cents on every dollar is wasted as heat. Not a very good investment, frankly. Hydrogen fuel cells, 60% efficient. Hydrogen, the most abundant molecule on the earth. Another is to manage the carbon and the environmental footprint, the land, the water, and the air that is so important to our children and our grandchildren have an independent regulatory agency set the ground rules for land and water and air as it deals from, as it, as it is impacted by energy. And finally, a fourth authority to set the parameters for these interstate and regional infrastructure requirements of future energy construction. Those four authorities. So, doesn't that all make sense? Let's all go home, call the White House, and say we want an independent regulatory agency to take over for your failure of you and your seven predecessors. And we can call the majority leader and the Speaker of the House and say we have to have an independent regulatory agency to take up for the failure of you and your predecessors of 18 Congresses. Doesn't quite work that way. The second thing we have to do, there aren't enough of us in this room to make that happen. But there are enough of us in this country to make that happen. And so Citizens for Affordable Energy, which my wife and I founded, as a way of reaching grassroots Americans at all levels, in all walks of life, from all parties, from all faiths, from every kind of cultural background, every person in America uses energy. Every person in America needs energy. And we can't live as a society in harmony and peace and stability if we don't have energy. And so we started Citizens for Affordable Energy to begin the long march. The long march to Washington. Because this can only happen at the federal level. And the long march to Washington needs to include not hundreds, not thousands, it needs to include tens of millions of people to effectively convince our elected representatives that they work for us, we don't work for them. And to put forward a program of getting energy out of politics so that like food and water, energy can stand as the, the, the source of our future economic well-being and the source of our future lifestyle comfort and, our fu and the source of our future security. This is a serious effort, ladies and gentlemen. We don't have a lot of time, but I am convinced we will succeed. We can either succeed as a people in a rational, logical, practical way forward over the coming years, or we will succeed as a people, but when the lights aren't working and the telephones don't work because we can't recharge them and we're too busy in the gas line waiting to get a fill-up so we can go to the next discussion of how we make this happen. Then we will act. I hope we can act sooner. But it may be that we act later. But in any event, our children and grandchildren are too important 
not to undertake this endeavor. Thanks for listening. Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, very provocative thesis and delivered with a great deal of passion, um, and that's always fun. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, looking at this from a sort of Adam Smith perspective, we see lots of experimentation around the world, lots of countries that are, are approaching sort of the same problem in different ways. Uh, and you can think about different countries, whether it's um, uh, China, immense energy needs, India, Brazil, uh, Germany, Japan, UK, are there any countries that you look to and, and think, boy, that is a model uh, that we need to follow? Uh, they are doing something that we need to do, whether sort of broadly speaking or even in, in uh, uh, sort of a smaller segment of, of their national policy. China has effectively created such an organization. They have, but they have a one-party system where the voice of the people doesn't really matter. They're going to do it regardless. So I don't advocate the Chinese method because I am firmly convinced that democracy is a better option than authoritarianism. But they have the most comprehensive, the most detailed, and the most effective planning process, which they then go make happen. But they're not sorry about moving three million people to make sure a dam sits where they want it to sit. And, and they're not ashamed that the air quality in Beijing and Shanghai is unbreathable, uh, but they're still building another coal plant every week. Uh, they are installing other kinds of energy as well, nuclear as well as wind farms and solar farms and, and more dams, but they do it their way. They know that they will be the energy power of the 21st century. Nothing's going to stop them. And they watch what's happening here. In fact, tomorrow I'm giving a talk to 800 Chinese graduates of a Chinese university who are gathering for an alumni reunion in Houston uh, tomorrow morning, sponsored by GE. And... and they are celebrating, in essence, their growth path. We had that growth path in the 20th century. It wasn't master planned, but it happened. But that was before energy was as regulated as it is now. There isn't, the European Union does get their act together, but it's very laborious and it takes a long time. But they don't really have as much of a solid, as much, as much comp, uh, how would I say it? They're not as joined as they need to be. In, in order to achieve what they're trying to achieve. Germany, is a, relative to the U.S., is a small country, but they, they have done a fairly planful job, and the French have done a very planful job, <coughs> relying in particular on nuclear energy. Nobody does it great in the, in the Western democracies. But why shouldn't the U.S. lead that? That's my point. Question over there. I'm just curious if you've had any dialogue at all with the White House, if... if President Obama or any of his staff are aware of your book and aware of your idea, and if they are aware, have you had any response? I've met with the Vice President and with uh, Carol Browner, and in the prior White House I'd met with Vice President Cheney and, and, uh, and Al Hubbard, uh, and I've met with many of the members and senators from both parties to talk about this. It's dead on arrival. It's fundamentally dead on arrival because their view is we're, that's what we're here for. You elected us to govern you, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to govern you. The fact that nothing happens is always going to be fixed at the next election, and it never happens again. So, so it has to be a mass movement because it won't, 
happen from within because they give up something. They did it in 1913 because it was a crisis. It was a compelling monetary crisis that was unsolvable. It may take that kind of compelling energy crisis that's unsolvable. So you use the uh, Federal Reserve's independence as an example. Already that independence is being questioned. Um, we also look at, you know, despite how much we distrust the elected officials and their approval ratings, don't we distrust oil executives even more um, than we do the government? How, how are you going to go about convincing the people that the hated oil executives, because presumably they're, they're going to be the ones to run the independent body, they're the ones that are most, uh, most well-suited to run that, how are you going to convince them that oil executives are going to be less hated than uh, government officials? I, I th that's a good question, and, and the answer is there probably wouldn't be too many oil executives on the board of governors, uh, re realistically. But there could be knowledgeable people. You don't have to run an oil company to know something about energy. And, and so I think the board would need to be constituted of a diverse collection of knowledgeable people, not political hacks, not a bunch of former politicians, but people that really know and understand. I mean, Secretary Chu would be a perfect example of a scientist who really understands molecular structures. And, and so you would want a scientist on such a board. And he hasn't been a politician. He only became a politician when the president appointed him Secretary of Energy. And he's actually a technocrat more than he is a politician because his, if you've met him, his style is he doesn't really care about who's going to vote for him because he's not running for office. He's doing a job. But a, a Jack Welch would be somebody. I mean, he's not of the age anymore, but somebody of his caliber, of his credentials. Uh, somebody, you know, like, uh, you know, your um, former head of American Airlines, whose name I can't recall at the moment, Bob Crandall. I mean, he's a big energy consumer. He understands energy. So a Larry Kellner from, from Continental Airlines. So it would be people that know something about what it takes to produce, consume, utilize, apply technology. Those would be the kind of people that you would appoint to such a board. Bob Gravel, last question. I'm honored to get to ask it. First, I appreciate your candor. I spent 35 years in government, and I certainly uh, will affirm the difficulties we have in moving toward a unified objective. My question is, uh, natural gas, which we seem to increasingly have a substantial uh, supply, and uh, then the oil sands and the oil shell. Do you believe that any or all of these can be used as a stopgap measure until we can reach uh, a hydrogen uh, infrastructure? I think that's really a key point. Here's the reality. In a world of energy shortage, which we are becoming, we actually have more energy than we'll ever need, ever, or ever, or ever. There's more energy on this earth in this nation than we will ever, ever need. We just decide, need to decide which to use when. That would be the role of the Federal Energy Resources Board. Which energy do we use when? And yes, in the case of bridging our way to the 21st, through the 21st century and into the 22nd century while positioning for the 23rd century, all of which will happen. Natural gas, oil, coal have to be a part of the solution. And the extent to which more natural gas is available to us at affordable prices, then that would naturally be 
where we would go. Nuclear. I mean, we have 104 plants that are coming up on decommissioning in the next decade, decade and a half. They'll all go away. They're only allowed to operate for 40 years. And who wants to recommission a 40-year-old plant? We need to replace them. And while we're at it, we should probably double the size of the fleet to 200 nuclear plants. Well, that would enable us to commoditize nuclear. Commoditizing nuclear would enable us to bring the cost down from the permitting standpoint, from the liability standpoint, from the parts manufacturing standpoint, from the plant siting standpoint, and make cookie-cutter, look-alike nuclear plants, a couple hundred of them. That's what the French did. And tackle the waste issue the way the French have tackled it. There are solutions out there waiting to be had. So I'm optimistic that we will always have energy. question is, will we be allowed to use it? <laughs> and, and that's where we need somebody to guide this process in ways that can effectively, in a timely way, utilize all the energy we need. For there's three criteria to be affordable. If it's not affordable, what good is it? We can't be a society of energy haves and have-nots. That doesn't work in our culture. It needs to be available, so it works when the light switch is turned on. And it needs to be sustainable so that our children and grandchildren have a better world than we had. And we ought to be smart enough to be able to figure that out. Thank you. Thank you, John. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.